22. Um, I've never preached on this psalm before, and with, with a bit of a late change this week, I was tempted to go back and just pull out a, an old message on, on a different psalm, but there's no fun or challenge in that. So I ended up here in Psalm 22 of all places after a conversation with an old friend on Friday night, a guy called Johnny Wiley. Uh, we were chatting over coffee and we got to talking about Psalm 22 and I thought, right, we'll go there. So let me read some of it and then we will take a mosey through it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Uh, we will go through the, the, the whole psalm, um, but we'll stop there for a reading of it. Now, this is one of the most remarkable psalms. In fact, Spurgeon said about this, we should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in scripture, it is in this psalm. This is a phenomenal psalm. The opening verses of the psalm or the opening verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Probably the only verse in the Psalms that's more familiar to people than that one is the opening verse of the next Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Because this is what Jesus cried on the cross in Matthew 27. 
About three in the afternoon, he cried out with a loud voice. And and these words are Aramaic. So these are the actual words that would have come out of Jesus' mouth. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, this whole psalm is a psalm of the cross. And this morning, we're going to be at the cross. And the language that David uses is phenomenal. You've got to bear in mind, and you're probably, as we read that, you're probably hearing loads of allusions to the cross. You've got to bear in mind that David wrote this psalm 1,000 years before the cross, before Jesus was crucified. And if that's not enough to sort of blow your mind about the Holy Spirit inspiring David, David wrote this psalm 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. So it's staggering that he uses the language that he uses. It's a profoundly prophetic psalm, and it gives us something that the Gospels don't give us. You know I love the Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us eyewitness accounts from their point of view, or the point of view of whoever they did their research with. The, The eyewitness, what they saw when Jesus was on the cross being crucified. That's the perspective that the Gospels give us. David, writing a thousand years earlier, gives us the view of the cross from the cross. It's a phenomenal gift to us, this psalm, because this tells us what was in Jesus' mind during those hours of darkness. There's so many things that are picked up by the Gospel writers from this psalm. I think one, one scholar suggested that there's about 20 references to this psalm in the crucifixion accounts. And uh, I've just spent the last sort of 24 hours or so meditating on it. I've been journeying briefly with Tim Mackey, uh, with Michael Wilcock, with Bruce Waltke. Tim Mackey, if you've never heard of him, I've mentioned him before, The Bible Project. It is just a feast. It's an absolute feast. Download the app and stuff yourself. (laughs) Be greedy for the word of God. It is wonderful, wonderful stuff. The psalm starts with this idea of being God forsaken. If I really, really don't like a place (laughs) and I want the most derogatory term that I can possibly use for it, I'll probably say it is a God forsaken hole. (laughs) You know, there are a couple of towns around Ireland, I will not mention them, but I would describe them as such. And like, I'm never, ever going back there again. God forsaken is the worst thing a person or a place can be. And the psalm opens up and immediately grabs you and addresses the contradiction that all of us, if we've walked with God any length of time, we will have faced this. We may be facing it right now. We definitely will. We believe that God is good, that he delivers people, that he loves humanity, that he loves us, that he wants our good that he works for our good. These are all the things that we believe and we know, and many of us, all of us probably have proved over years of walking with him. But yet when we look around us and we look globally at the trauma and tragedy of the world 
and then look personally from time to time in our own experiences or the experiences of those we love and we see trauma and tragedy around them, we face this contradiction. God, you're so good. You are so powerful. You are so loving. This circumstance is so awful. Why? Why? How do we hold those two things together? What we know to be true about God and what we can see around us or what we may personally ourselves be going through. And the Psalms, these Psalms of lament, Aaron mentioned lament a few weeks ago, these Psalms of lament do not attempt to answer the question of how we hold the the goodness and the love of God with the tragedy and the pain that is around us. The Psalms don't attempt to answer that question. What the Psalms do is they give us a language of prayer to pray through it, a vocabulary, a way to talk to God. And I've been challenged even pondering this Psalm yesterday that I don't pray, and we'll get to this a bit later, the way this guy prays. He does something that for me is counterintuitive and I'm going to have to shift a little bit how I pray. And regarding the big theological question that people ask, if you've read the ends of the Gospels and those crucifixion accounts and you've seen Jesus cry out those words from the start of this psalm, the theological question, did God abandon Jesus on the cross? Is that what Jesus was saying? Or was Jesus alluding to this entire psalm and just giving the first verse as a way of of drawing people's attention to the psalm. Regarding that question, I'm not going there. (laughs) There are certain things that I think are just so weighty and precious that I will allow Tom Wright to talk about it, but I won't even dare try. (laughs) I'm not going to weigh into the holy ground of what happened in those moments between the Father and the Son. All I know for certain from the Gospels is that this is the psalm that Jesus went to in his darkest suffering. Of all the psalms, of all the things he could have said, this in those moments is what he reached for. And I believe he was not only referring to the first verse. I believe, and we'll see later, that he meditated on this psalm throughout the entire torment of his crucifixion. That he prayed it, that he thought about it, that he fulfilled it, that it was, it was in his mind. And therefore, we are on holy ground, as Spurgeon said. If this is what Jesus chose during his suffering, then we should do likewise. There's an inscription at the start of the psalm. And just a wee note for you, those inscriptions are part of Scripture. Those are not headings put in by the Bible translators. So what it says there, for the director of music to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. That's scripture. And what we know about this is that that David wanted the psalm to be sung. It's intensely personal. David is going through some anguish here. And we don't know what it is. Some of the Psalms we can connect beautifully to a period in David's life and say when David was in that cave in Adullam, he wrote that Psalm. 
and we can understand a lot about it. This one, we don't know exactly what his circumstances were, but he was in deep anguish. And I think it's good that we don't know his circumstances because you know what? This now invites everyone who has ever felt abandoned by God, forsaken, alone, unheard in their prayers. This invites everyone to come in and lay hold on this psalm. It is, it is general enough that we can enter into it and say, David's experience, Jesus' experience, my experience. And the doe of the morning or the deer of the morning could well have been uh, an animal being hunted, hunted to death. And that's where the tune name comes from, possibly. And David is going to lament and he's going to protest to God. But I want you to see there's, there's a difference between being angry in the presence of God and being angry with God venting anger towards God. David is angry and he is going to lament and he is going to protest in the presence of God, but he is not being disrespectful to God. He is not venting anger or directing it at God. He start, you know, even just he doesn't just say God or he doesn't say you or or whatever. He says my God. So we, as he starts this long lament, he is not swinging his fists, raging, cursing at God. He is coming and bringing out what is within him, ugly as it is going to be in the presence of his loving God, his Father. And he ponders in, in verses 3 to 5, we're just going to sort of dander through here. In verses 3 to 5, he ponders the faithfulness of God. He says in verse 3, you're enthroned as the Holy One, you are the one Israel praises. Or you might have a different version that says something along the lines of, He inhabits the praises of His people. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He's talking about the Exodus. So in, in, in the middle of his lament to God as he comes and feels forsaken, he still, even though he feels forsaken by God, even though you, you read verses 1 and 2 and you see exactly how he feels, it does not stop him from talking to God. It does not stop him from coming and, and engaging his memory to ponder the faithfulness of God in the past to others, to his people, to my people. Again, I want, I want you to shift and really get your biblical understanding. The Exodus is the history of your people. We are grafted into the people of God. We are descendants of Abraham by faith. These stories of God's faithfulness are the stories of your ancestors and mine. And in his lament and in his loneliness and in his feeling of being forsaken, David goes back and he ponders over the faithfulness of God to his people. I know you're faithful. I know you're our deliverer. I just would love to know where are you now? Because <laughs> I feel forsaken. And he goes on in verse 6 to say, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. There's one really important word. There's lots of important words there, but there's a, there's a word there that, that got me late last night. Worm. <laughs> Say worm. worm. There you go, worm. Insignificant. 
worthless unless you're a gardener and then you realize, no, these, these are really good. Um, but, but a thing of, of no beauty, no, no worth, no value for, for many people, a worm. This is how he feels. Just worthless, useless, trampled on. The Hebrew word for worm is tola. Now, this is new to me. And, and the, these are the, the nerdy things that can float a guy's boat late on a Saturday night. The Hebrew word tola also means scarlet, as in red, bright red. Whenever you read in Exodus about the curtain of the temple having scarlet thread, it's tola thread. It's the same word. This type of worm, this tola worm, would have been crushed in order to extract a bright red scarlet dye that was then used to dye fabric red. In fact, one writer has suggested that that would have been the source of the red dye used for the scarlet thread in the curtain in the temple. These tola worms. And if that's not nerdy enough about these worms, whenever the female worm was ready to lay her eggs, she would attach herself, get this, she would attach herself permanently to a tree. Not a wall, not a stone, not a tree. And when she would attach herself to the tree, she'd lay the eggs and then she would stay there and protect the eggs that she had laid. Then she would die. After she died, the scarlet dye would be released from her body and leave a bright red stain in the wood of the tree. A worm. <laughs> the word of God's amazing. <laughs> Every word. Things that you just pass by and then by chance as you're reading something, you, you, you see stuff like this and you're like, goodness me. <laughs> the nerd levels are through the roof right now. A permanent red stain on the wood of the tree from the death of this crushed worm. Not only is he abandoned by God, but he's also abandoned by men. It is horrendous to feel that your prayers are unanswered. It is horrendous to feel that they are unheard, to feel that God has forsaken you. And it adds another level of horror to it when you feel alone, isolated. That people have either turned on you or have just forgotten you. And this is how David feels. This is how Jesus felt on the cross. And it's just beyond dispute that as we read these words, that this is, this psalm is talking about the cross. Psalm 22, verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. And Jesus heard those who passed by hurling insults at him in Matthew 27, shaking their heads. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus mocked on the cross by these bystanders hurling insults at him. And David goes on in the psalm to talk about how God has been with him from the earliest moments of life. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. It's the picture of God as a midwife. And the precious 
moment of of David's life beginning, he's aware, God, you were there from the very, very start. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. And again, our minds go to Jesus because Jesus at the start of the Gospels now in Luke 1, whenever Mary asks the angel, how can she have a child since she's a virgin? The angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come in you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God will bring forth this life. But David still feels alone. You've been with me since birth. You were with my ancestors. We have seen your faithfulness and we have talked about it. But where are you now? Because it feels like you're far from me. He goes on to do what's quite common in ancient literature, in the Bible in general, is uh, to use animals to represent those who oppose you, those who are hostile. Bulls. A bull out of control is a pretty sort of terrifying thing. A roaring lion with a mouth open wide against him. He goes on to say he's poured out like water. He talks in the language of thirst. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus on the cross in John's account, knowing that everything was finished so that scripture would be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. He meditated on this psalm. When you're suffering, when you feel that God has forsaken you, when you're going through what what people theologically refer to sometimes as the dark night of the soul, this is where you go. Because this is where Jesus went. You go and you pray this psalm. He thirsted. Dogs, we think of dogs, you know, as cute and friendly and desirable, but dogs were scavengers in the ancient world. And no matter how much, whether you're afraid of dogs or not afraid of dogs, if you see one of those sort of breeds that, that do great harm to people, if you see one of those running at you snarling, you'll not be long getting up a tree or over a wall to get away from it. Vicious. And look at, the, look at the language that he uses. They pierced my hands and my feet. 500 years before crucifixion was, was dreamt up in the, in the evil heart of some man. David uses this language. Not only that, but my bones are on display. The, the Roman whip that would have been used to to whip Jesus, to scourge him before he went to the cross in a, in a scourging that, would, that killed many men before they even got crucified. That Roman whip, called, I think called a flagellum, and the bits of metal and bone in the, in the leather strands of the whip designed to get a hold of the skin and literally tear it off. And I, I finally, after years of not watching it, I finally watched The Passion of the Christ this year. It was a hard watch. My goodness. I watch with caution. (laughs) It was a hard watch. It was brutal. My bones are on display. And then they divide my clothes. And of course, again, in in the Gospels in Mark this time, they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. 18 verses we have just hit. 
18 verses in Psalm 22 of solid lament. 18 verses. Only now does he move into request. And only for three verses. Listen to the simple request that David makes. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And just for a lighter moment, in the King James Version, wild oxen is unicorn. There are unicorns in the Bible. (laughs) You can go home and ponder that one and figure it out. Three verses of request. Now, let, let's just count here. Lament, because I, this challenged me in how I pray, and I hope it affects you in how you pray. Lament, protest, complaint, description of, of the situation, 18 verses. Request, three verses. My prayer life would be an inversion of that. Tim Mackey points out, That when we are in times of crisis, when we feel God forsaken, we go into request mode and we tell God what he needs to do to remedy our situation. Our our attitude is God already knows what's happening and he knows how I feel. So I'm not going to tell him that. I'm going to tell him what he needs to do. I'm going to be the intelligent one in the partnership, me and God. I'm going to be the smart one. And I'm going to tell God what he needs to do to sort everything out. Go into request mode. I don't know about you. I do that when I'm praying. I sort of suss out, well, if this, 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 and this happened, that situation would be remedied. So I start praying, God, make this, 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 and this happen. Request. So the, the, the assumption that we take to prayer, that I take to prayer, and maybe some of you as well, is that God knows all about my situation and how I feel, and what I should do is tell him what to do. This psalm teaches us the opposite, that what we should do is spend time telling God how we feel. Does he know already? Yes. But the psalm invites us, 18 verses of lament. The psalm invites us to get into the presence of God and tell him exactly what's going on. The dogs, the bulls, the wild oxen, the slander, the people who are opposing you, the feeling of abandonment. Raw, honest, spit it out in the presence of God. And it's not a case of God knows all that and therefore I tell him what to do. It's a case of God knows what to do. I'm going to tell him how I feel. That's what the psalm teaches us about prayer. 18 verses of lament and description. Three verses of request. Do you pray like this? (laughs) Or do you feel like I do sometimes that if we pray like this, God's going to think, oh, Here's that moaner again coming and moaning about his lot or her lot. But I believe this psalm tells us in those dark moments of suffering, the thing that we need most is to trust that God knows what to do and instead come to his presence and tell him exactly what's going on.
and use strong descriptive language if need be. Get yourself back into the mindset of a time in the past where you have gone through one of these dark nights of the soul. Think about how you prayed. Did you try to figure out what to do? And then think, if I ask God hard enough, loud enough, with enough faith, he'll maybe do all the things that I think should be done. Or did you go to God and pour out your heart? This is how I feel. What would it look like to pray like this? Tim Mackey quotes uh, a commentator called Kathleen O'Connor who's written a a commentary on, on the book of Lamentations. And she says, Lamentation names what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world. Not my wee idea of what the world should be, but what's out of order in God's world. What keeps human beings from thriving in all of their creative potential. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions, name them, open them to grief and anger, and make them visible for remedy. Lamentation names what is wrong. Lamentation goes to God and says, I know your character. I know your heart. I know you love your people. I know you love all of humanity. I know you're a God who delivers. This situation is wrong. This is unjust. This is not right. And you go and you bring that lamentation to God about the things that you see that are not right in God's world. God invites us. This this culture of lamentation, God invites us to process traumatic, tragic, heartbreaking, unjust circumstances that are around us and around those who we love. 18 verses of lament. I'm going to keep saying it so that you get it into your head. 18 verses of lament, three verses of request. Do not feel ashamed or embarrassed about going to God and just saying, this situation sucks and I feel like dirt because of it. Because that's how David prayed and in his darkest moment, that's how Jesus prayed. My most powerful experiences of prayer have been experiences like this. You can't really do it when there's someone else in the house. But it'd be great if there was a church and a key box on a wall and you knew the code and you could come down anytime you want, day or night, and come in and lock the door behind you and just walk around and just let it out. When there's no one listening. Occasionally you come in and you don't realise for 10 minutes that Ashley's actually in the prayer room. And then you really get freaked out by it. So you should check it first. But this is a great place. And I've done that. And there's times I've come down here and I have literally yelled. I have literally yelled. I remember one night when I was just shouting and saying, Where is the justice in that? And I said it over and over again. Where is the justice in that? I remember times of of saying, God, I love you, I trust you, but if you don't do something about this soon, I'm finished. I can't stand any longer. I can't go on living like this. Lament. It's powerful. It's good for the soul. And you've got a geographical little patch of the earth if you want to ever come and lament where no one can hear you. 
the final section of the psalm, after lament and request, there is then praise for deliverance. Something happens between verse 21 and verse 22. 18 verses of lament, three verses of request. That's a six to one ratio, just so you know. For every one verse of request, there are six verses of lament. You're getting the point. Change how you pray. (laughs) But after that, after those three verses of request, there is a shift. In the NIV, verse 21 says, Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. When you look at Blue Letter Bible and you look at the Hebrew words, uh, you tend to lean more towards a translation something like this. This is the New English translation. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. There's a word there in Hebrew that, that is the vast majority of times, 90% of the times that it's translated in your Bible, it is you have answered me. And it's almost like after all of this lament, all of this feeling of being forsaken, of being alone, God has abandoned me, men and women have abandoned me, the dogs are surrounding me, suddenly there is breakthrough. There's an answer. Now we don't know in David's life what this was. Something happened to change the tone from verse 21 to verse 22. It might have been a great deliverance that that we just aren't aware of. Or it might have been just that he heard God and he knew then it's going to be okay. God has heard me. And his lament then turns into praise in the third and the final section of the psalm. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. I'm not keeping this to myself. Yeah, I might have come down and got the key out of the key box and prayed on my own. But now victory has come. I'm going to tell people. And we're going to celebrate. We're going to praise God. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. What has been a private dark night of the soul is going to become a public celebration. And again, the verses here are applied to Jesus. Top of the screen, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. Hebrews 2, Jesus suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And jumping on, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And then verse 24. Awesome. (laughs) After the, the lament of verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David is now declaring to all of the people, all of his brothers and sisters in the congregation as they praise God. And he says, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face. He has listened to his cry for help. And this psalm, unfortunately, is known for the first verse. And many people just don't even notice verse 24. (laughs) It's the psalm of forsakenness. It's the psalm of of Jesus on the cross. But but they just seem to, 
It's like when people give up watching a film half an hour before they end and they don't get to the whole climax of the thing. This is the climax. He is not despite. He is listening. He's not ignoring us. He's not forsaking us. He is with us. And whenever David has had his answer to prayer or had his deliverance or whatever has happened for him, he says, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. That means he's going to make sacrifices. And if you haven't realized it before, a lot of the sacrifices in the Old Testament then ended up in a barbecue. Some sacrifices were complete, total burnt offerings where the entire sacrifice was burnt. But some of them, part of the sacrifice was offered to God and burnt, and then part of it was, was cooked and eaten in a feast. And David sees the poor will eat and satisfy. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. He sees this celebration. I have lamented. I have been through a dark night of the soul, but now God has delivered me and I'm throwing a party and I'm inviting people to come and celebrate with me. Do you do that? Because if we're going to invite people to celebrate our deliverances, then we need to invite people to share in our lament. We need to cultivate relationships that invite people into our stories, into our struggles, into our lament. And we'll find very quickly that in those relationships, probably everybody around the table will have gone through or will be going through times of thinking, has God forsaken me? Or has God forsaken this person that I love? And when you invite into that sort of community of lament, then you have the opportunity to become a community of praise. My most powerful experiences in prayer, when prayer has involved lamenting and just dropping all the flowery language and being real in the presence of God, uh, that, that then has led to some of the most powerful celebrations of deliverance. There was a night here that I talk about much and that Aaron still reminds me about and Daniel because they were closest to me when it happened <laughs> geographically right here. Um, we were singing one Sunday night, raise a hallelujah. And I was bouncing because I was celebrating. <laughs> and we got to that line, fear you lost your hold on me. And I looked at the ground and roared, do you hear that? Because <laughs> I was celebrating deliverance because I had lamented all the ends of the earth will remember. This, this now is praise on a global level. This now has moved from David to something bigger. David's deliverance could not cause all the ends of the earth to remember and turn to the Lord. This is now Jesus, flat out 100% Jesus. All the families of the nations will bow down to him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. Again, feasting. Don't ever belittle eating. Last Sunday morning, we just shelved the formal service and we just ate together. It was beautiful. It was church, okay? It was church. The last couple of verses. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. Again, here's a verse that I'd never noticed before or phrase in this psalm because I got so caught up on the start of it. He has done it. He has done it. Now, in Hebrew, that, four words in English, 
is one word in Hebrew, Asa, just one word. It literally, the psalm just ends, done. That's it. And it reminds me of someone else who cried out a word that in Greek is teleo, and the word means finished. Jesus started his suffering with Psalm 21, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he spent those hours of darkness just clinging to this psalm. And I would strongly, I would beg you to do the same in your hours of darkness. Or as you stand in the gap on behalf of others in their hours of darkness. He clung to this psalm. And at the end of the psalm, one word in Hebrew, done. And at the end of his period of suffering, one word in Greek, finished. Finished. The psalm is a great gift to us. During hours of unspeakable darkness and agony, Jesus reached for it. We get the perspective of the cross from Jesus himself. And you will likely find that this right now applies either to you or to someone you love. And the third part of the psalm, you might not be there. You might be in the first part and the second part. They might be very familiar. David experienced something that led him into the third part of the psalm. Jesus initially didn't. Jesus had a dark night of the soul in Gethsemane when he begged his father to take the cup away from him. The cup of God's wrath, something that's referred to by the prophets in the Old Testament, a terrifying picture. And Jesus asked for the cup of God's wrath to be taken away, and it wasn't. He had to drink it. He had to drain it. Every last drop, he was not delivered until Sunday morning. His deliverance was through death, on the other side of death, in glorious resurrection. And because he has gone through, we can engage in the praise at the end of Psalm 22, even though we may ourselves still be awaiting a particular deliverance a particular answer from God because David went ahead of us and because Jesus blasted through death ahead of us, we can still step into that third part and we can praise him even when the deliverance has not come and the answer has not come. We know that he will take us there. We must straighten out our understanding. Sometimes there are things that we will not be delivered from in this life would love everything to straighten itself out, but we've got to get a biblical picture on life and on eternal life. That death is not actually the end of your opportunities to be delivered. We stood, or we sat in, in May and watched an aging Bruce Springsteen, now in his early 70s, finishing off a three-hour show of just bonkers energy and anthems from 40-odd years. And he finishes the night on his own on the stage singing the last song from his most recent album, which is about getting old. All the members of his original band are dead. 
a very powerful song and a very powerful video made of the recording of the song and his producer is sitting at the sound desk absolutely bawling his eyes out as he as he listens to this song and there's just a powerful line in it where he says death is not the end paul and isaiah put it better death has been swallowed up in victory our deliverance might not come on the time frame we want but it will come we have to be people who believe and live in the light of eternity so jesus did experience glorious deliverance god did hear the cries in gethsemane god never left him that moment on the cross where jesus that mysterious moment where he became sin where he took sin on him i'm not even going to speculate i don't know but I know God heard every cry and he hears every cry from us and he has not despised our suffering. He has not hidden his face. He has listened. Let's sing about the cross and let me invite you and encourage you to enter into this psalm in your darkest moments and to do it on behalf of others as well.